When we last left off in part one, Kristen's double life and extramarital affairs had finally caught up with her. She was no longer able to hide her duplicity from those who were closest to her. Her parents, suspecting something was wrong, offered her an alternative, a way out. They offered love and support and suggested a divorce. Fearing Greg's reaction would lead Kristen to losing her job and the discovery of her drug addiction, she found herself at a crossroad, each path with its myriad of consequences. The path she chose in the end had deadly repercussions. Join me now as we uncover Kristen Rosam's conniving plan to ensure she'd be free to pursue her budding new romance with the doctor while ultimately shattering and destroying the man who had tried to rescue her from her destructive self. When Kristen awoke at 7 a.m. on Monday, November 6th, it is suspected that Greg was unconscious due to the drugs Kristen had slipped into his drinks the night before. As Greg lay unconscious, it is believed that Kristen then began administering fentanyl patches on his body. Although fentanyl is a legal drug and is many times stronger than morphine, it still takes time to work its way from the skin patches into the bloodstream. It's alleged that Kristen spent the day shuttling back and forth between work and their apartment while she continued to place fentanyl patches on Greg's body. At 12.10, Kristen was witnessed erratically pulling into her apartment complex, illegally parking and running upstairs. Ten minutes later, after looking in on her dying husband, she called Dr. Robertson. It was during that conversation prosecutors would argue at trial that the couple finalized plans to stage Greg's death as a suicide. After the call, she drove straight to the grocery store where she admitted purchasing cold medicine and canned soup. Later, it would be discovered there was a third item purchased that day, a single rose. According to her store discount card, this transaction was completed at 12.41 p.m., at this point in the day, according to forensic evidence, Greg would have been in a deep and crippling coma, struggling against the drugs that were overpowering his body's will to live. By 1.30 in the afternoon, Kristen was back at the lab again, looking frazzled and upset. An hour later, she left again, making the 15-minute drive back to her place. Her apartment manager recalled seeing her car parked askew next to her own car when she left for lunch at 2.45 p.m. Just after 3 o'clock p.m., Dr. Robertson suddenly left work to meet Kristen near her home. For the next few hours, they would be together, later providing each other with alibis. It is alleged that during this time, Dr. Robertson was the one to inject Greg's left arm with the final and lethal dose of fentanyl. Later experts would testify that he was given enough fentanyl to kill him many times over. At 6.30 p.m., Kristen drove back to the medical examiner's office one last time, claiming she returned only to turn off the HPLC machine. Authorities believe she actually returned to dump evidence. When Kristen returned to her apartment 90 minutes later, Greg was almost certainly dead. It was then that investigators believed she was carefully setting the scene for his suicide, quote-unquote. This is how investigators reconstructed Kristen's actions over the next hour and a half. Inspired by her favorite movie, American Beauty, Kristen took the red rose that she had bought earlier and scattered the fresh petals around Greg's body. Then she took their favorite framed wedding photo, placed it by his head, and carefully left her journal open on a nearby table. She also wrote a note to Greg, which she placed near the bed. It read, Hi, Sleepy. I'm going to go shopping and get a wedding gift for Barb. Leftovers are in the fridge for you. I hope you feel better, and I'll see you later. At about 9 p.m., 
Satisfied that everything was in place, she took a quick shower and put on her pajamas. She then smoked some crystal methamphetamine before calling 911 from the cordless phone in the kitchen. Unfortunately, the 911 operators were about to ruin Kristen's careful staging by insisting she perform CPR on Greg. Her first instruction was to move Greg from the bed to the floor. While pretending to give CPR, she removed all the rose petals from the bed and carefully replaced them all around Greg on the floor. She also moved the wedding photo to the floor and propped it next to a dresser by his head. According to investigators, Kristen began to blow into the phone, pretending she was administering CPR to Greg. Just as the operator told her to pump Greg's chest about 15 times, the paramedics arrived while Kristen was holding the phone in the living room, nowhere near Greg's body. She cried into the phone that they had arrived and burst into tears. Later, paramedics would testify there were no marks on Greg's chest, which would have been visible if Kristen had actually been performing CPR. They stated, Greg was pale with blue lips and he looked dead. They also remember the bed looking freshly made, as if no one had been sleeping in it. Campus police arrived shortly after the paramedics and joined in assisting the paramedics in resuscitating Greg DeVillers. Campus officer Preciado noticed that other than the blue lips, the 26-year-old looked extremely fit and healthy. He also noticed red smudges or blotches on the beige carpet which he mistook for blood. When he reached for the smudges, they moved. He realized they were red rose petals. Greg felt warm to the touch, and it was evident he had recently taken his last breath. Paramedics were determined to make every effort to bring Greg back and intubated him, and then hooked him up to a heart monitor. Sadly, the monitor continued to register a flat line. When the paramedic rolled Greg onto a backboard for transport to the hospital, he immediately noticed an absence of rose petals under the body. If Greg had been originally covered in rose petals and dragged from the bed onto the floor for CPR, why weren't there rose petals under his body? The paramedic took a quick scan around the room looking to see what could have caused this seemingly healthy 26-year-old man to die. Other than a bottle of cough syrup, there was an absence of prescription pill vials or signs of illegal drug use. Nothing looked out of place, and there wasn't a suicide note at the scene. Campus officer Preciado asked Kristen if her husband suffered from any medical problems or was taking any medication. An agitated Kristen repeated that her husband had overdosed on pills. This was her theory on Greg's death. She then walked into the bathroom and produced a Vicodin pill bottle. As paramedics desperately fought to revive Greg, additional uniformed campus police officers arrived at 9.27 and began interviewing Kristen in the kitchen. She tearfully repeated her story that Greg had been ill the previous day and had overdosed on medication. Upon arriving at the hospital, Kristen called Dr. Robertson and asked him to come to the hospital to give her emotional support. He arrived 15 minutes later and immediately put his arms around Kristen and held her hand. Kristen then answered all the nurse's questions and provided Greg's medical background. Kristen at this point offered her second theory on what may have caused Greg's condition. She surmised he may have taken some old prescriptions she had purchased in Tijuana five years earlier when she'd been trying to wean herself off crystal meth. It was at this time that the nurse informed Kristen that her husband had been declared dead. It was exactly six days before his 27th birthday. 
After allowing the news of Greg's death to sink in, a social worker approached Kristen about donating Greg's organs and tissue. By 11.30 p.m., Kristen had signed all the necessary paperwork donating Greg's corneas, heart valves, skin, and some of his bones before heading home with Dr. Robertson. Meanwhile, earlier that day, when Greg DeVillers failed to show up for work, his boss, Dr. Grunewald, became concerned. The lack of communication was out of character for Greg, who was usually a reliable, dependable employee. The doctor immediately began phoning Greg at his home. Each time he called, there was no answer. He eventually asked another employee named Terry to keep trying. Eventually, by 7 p.m., Kristen picked up the phone. Kristen informed Terry that Greg hadn't been feeling well and was sleeping. The call left Terry feeling uneasy, and he sensed a strange tone in Kristen's voice. She sounded annoyed and hurried by his call. Left with a feeling of unease, Terry wondered why Kristen wouldn't let him speak to Greg. If Greg had been home all day, why hadn't he answered the phone one of the many times he had been called? Later that evening, around 9 p.m., Dr. Grunewald again called Greg's home. This time, Kristen answered crying, stating Greg was dying and the paramedics were trying to save his life. She then got off the phone, promising to call him back with an update. She never called him back. When Marie was unable to get information from the hospital, she had her older son Jerome call, and they again were refused information on Greg's condition. When they called Constance Rossum, they were told her husband Ralph was at the hospital and would call them with any updates. Jerome called again and insisted on more information from the nurse, who finally informed him that Greg had passed away. Jerome was shocked. He told his brother Bertrand, and Bertrand drove to his mother's condo so the tight-knit family could grieve together. It was during this time that Jerome decided to share some information with his mother that he had been holding back about Kristen. He told her Kristen was a former meth user. Jerome shared his concerns that Kristen could be involved in Greg's death. His mother, who loved Kristen, wouldn't hear about it. Meanwhile, Campus Police Sergeant Bob Jones met with Kristen and Dr. Robertson on the landing in front of her apartment. Detective Jones asked Dr. Robertson to remain outside while he sat down at the dining room table with Kristen to go over her version of events that night. She told Detective Jones that she and Greg had been fighting all week and it had started the previous Thursday when she announced she would be moving out. They had dinner with her parents on Friday night, and they spent Saturday night together, and Greg, still upset over Kristen's decision to leave, had taken some of her old prescriptions to help him sleep. He continued to sleep all day on Monday as well. She worked only 50 minutes away and was so concerned about Greg, she had come home several times that day to continue checking on him. She found him breathing a little loudly at times, but otherwise he seemed fine. She said they had soup together at lunch, and this is when Greg admitted taking some of her old drugs that she had used to wean herself off of meth five years earlier. The medications were oxycodone and clonazepam. When asked for the prescription bottles, Kristen explained that Greg had thrown them out years earlier, but secretly kept the pills without her knowledge. Kristen went on to explain that she had several errands to run that day after work and returned home to a sleeping Greg. She decided to unwind from her day by taking a long, relaxing shower and bath. She was about to go to bed sometime around 9 p.m. when she leaned over to kiss Greg and realized that he was cold and not breathing, and she immediately called 911. Medical examiner investigator Angie Wagner arrived around 1 a.m. and asked Kristen her own series of questions for her report. After the interviews were over, Ralph Rossum drove his daughter back to their family home in Claremont, California. Kristen seemed inconsolable. Investigators in the medical examiner's office believed that this was a case of suicide. The next morning, Greg's boss was about to call Greg again when he received a cryptic phone call from Dr. Robertson regarding Greg. Dr. Michael Robertson introduced himself as Kristen's boss and gave the doctor Kristen's phone number in Claremont. He said he couldn't give more details and referred him to the Rossums for more information. Constance Rossum told Greg's boss that he had been experiencing flu-like symptoms over the weekend and had mixed cough syrup with prescription drugs, causing an adverse allergic reaction, resulting in his death. That explanation sounded odd to the doctor, who not only held a PhD in forensics, but was also a medical doctor. He believed an allergic reaction would have occurred right away, and not two days later. Something didn't feel right to him, and it hadn't felt right to him all day. 
Greg's brother Jerome felt the exact same way as Greg's boss. The things just weren't adding up, and the shifting stories weren't helping with his unease. Jerome recalled Greg recently declining to take an antihistamine their mother had offered him for a stuffy nose. Greg was always very anti-drug. Jerome was determined to find out just what had happened to his brother and why. He wasn't ready to call his brother's death a suicide, an accidental overdose, or an adverse allergic reaction. Jerome thought that this was murder, and he set out to prove it. The next morning, Dr. Robertson informed the office that Kristen Rosam's husband had committed suicide by taking an overdose of drugs. At that morning's meeting, with the chief deputy medical examiner and chief investigators, Dr. Robertson was presented with investigator Angie Wagner's official report on Greg DeViller's death. It was determined, in accordance with office protocol involving the death of an employee or family member, that the autopsy would be conducted at UCSD Medical Center, and the toxicology would be performed in-house by the chief toxicologist, who happened to be Dr. Robertson. After the meeting, Lloyd Amborn, who recalled the persistent rumors of an improper relationship between Kristen and Dr. Robertson, decided to take special measures surrounding Greg's death to avoid any appearance of impropriety, and for the first time ever in office history, he would send all of Greg's toxicology work to an outside agency. Then he called Dr. Robertson into his office to inform him about his decision. He made it abundantly clear that Dr. Robertson was to have nothing to do with any of the specimens from Greg DeViller's autopsy. Then Amborn contacted Frank Barnhart at the Sheriff's Department Crime Lab, and he agreed to store Greg's toxicology samples off-site until they could be sent out for independent analysis. He then made one final call to the San Diego medical examiner, Brian Blackburn, informing him of Greg's death. Meanwhile, Jerome DeVillers had started his own personal investigation. The day before, when Kristen's brother Brent suggested her friend Dr. Robertson stay with her at the apartment, she loudly and nervously stated that that would be inappropriate. Her animated response set off alarm bells for Jerome. Prepared with a pocket tape recorder, he went to Kristen's apartment a few days later and was surprised to find her there with her boss, Dr. Robertson. Sobbing, she told him Greg had taken all of her oxycodone and clonazepam. She said Greg was upset by a letter he found from her old boyfriend. When Jerome stated he didn't believe Greg would kill himself, she quickly agreed, saying she thought it was an accidental overdose. Well aware of her past drug problems, he was highly suspicious of Kristen's story. Her emotions seemed forced and contrived, and she wasn't making much sense. Next, Jerome went over to Greg's office and had a conversation with his boss. When he shared that Greg's death was being labeled to suicide, his boss strongly disagreed. Dr. Stefan Grenwald showed some emails that he found on Greg's computer between Greg and Kristen. In them, Kristen communicates to Greg about his lack of trust in her and his accusations of an affair with her boss, Dr. Robertson, and he alleged drug relapse. When Jerome mentioned Kristen planned on having Greg cremated. Dr. Grenwell stated they couldn't allow that to happen. He insisted there needed to be an independent autopsy and talk screen performed. During the internal autopsy examination, Dr. Blackburn noticed Greg's lungs were three times heavier than normal, pointing to congestion. This indicated Greg would have been unconscious and comatose for at least 6 to 12 hours prior to his death. The pathologist also found signs of early pneumonia, meaning that Greg had been unable to breathe properly and clear his lungs. Greg's bladder was almost bursting with 550 millimeters of urine, which meant Greg had not been able to relieve himself 
for at least 10 hours prior to his death. Factoring the condition of the lungs and bladder together, Dr. Blackburn would later testify that Greg had probably been lying in bed unconscious from 7 a.m. Monday morning until 9.30 p.m. that same evening when Kristen called 911. Negating her assertions, she spoke with him throughout the day and even fed him soup. He also noted there were three puncture marks on his left arm, although the paramedics had only made two of them during their resuscitation attempts. Dr. Blackburn also took tissue and blood specimens for further laboratory testing. These were taken back to the medical examiner's office for later transport to the sheriff's office a few days later. He requested the samples be tested for alcohol, drugs of abuse, and a urine drug screen. He did not ask for a fentanyl test, as this was not office protocol. Dr. Blackburn informed Jerome that Greg had died of a drug overdose. When Jerome told him his brother detested drugs, Dr. Blackburn mentioned the rumors of an improper relationship between Kristen and her boss, Dr. Robertson, who were both employed at the medical examiner's office. Dr. Blackburn had just given Jerome a motive for Kristen to kill Greg. In an effort to stop the cremation, Jerome called the San Diego Police Department and asked to speak with a homicide detective on duty. That would turn out to be Detective Lori Agnew, a 23-year veteran. She listened carefully to Jerome's concerns that campus police had labeled his brother's death a suicide and that his body would soon be cremated. Back at the medical examiner's office, toxicologist Donald Lowe contacted campus police detective Sergeant Robert Jones with important information regarding the death of Greg. He told them that Kristen and Dr. Robertson were having an affair and that he felt that information was needed before declaring his death a suicide. Detective Jones recalled Dr. Robertson waiting outside Kristen's apartment for two hours on the night of Greg's death. After this call, he decided the matter should be handed over to the San Diego homicide for further investigation. He then called Detective Agnew, informing her about Kristen's affair with her boss at the medical examiner's office. Already armed with this information from her discussion with Jerome, she asked her supervisor to place a hold on Greg's body and stop the cremation. Detective Agnew officially opened up a homicide investigation into the death of Greg DeVillers. Greg's boss, having not been interviewed by anyone except Jerome, took it upon himself to send a letter to the San Diego homicide detectives explaining why Greg may not have committed suicide. It began, Dear Homicide Detectives, this statement is to express our strong belief that Gregory, who was our friend and co-worker for many years, has not shown any signs of suicidal tendency during all the time we have known him. This letter went on to describe Greg as a happy and ambitious person with exciting plans for the future. They also asked for an opportunity to offer evidence from Greg's computer and to discuss the matter with San Diego homicide detectives. Seven of Greg's co-workers signed the letter. After a memorial service held for Greg on November 12th, Jerome went back to Kristen and Greg's apartment and was stunned to find that Kristen had removed any and all trace of Greg. All of Greg's possessions were gone, including the framed wedding pictures that had adorned the walls just weeks before. The following week, the preliminary toxicology results were in, and they were astonishing. The comprehensive drug screen came back positive for the obscure but lethal drug fentanyl. The sheriff's crime lab called Dr. Blackburn with the news, who in turn informed Dr. Robertson's boss. Robertson was immediately ordered to break off all contact with Kristen without being told why. Frank Barnhart, Kristen's friend from the sheriff's crime lab, was determined to find out how Greg died. On his own initiative, he asked Pacific Laboratories to retest all specimens. He also sent out additional specimens to two other specialty labs, one in Las Vegas and one in Canada. He instructed them to spare no expense and do whatever testing was needed to confirm or disprove fentanyl and then measure the quantities in which it occurred. It was something that he had never done before in his long career. That same week, Kristen made several trips to Tijuana to buy meth from a taxi driver. Now on bereavement leave, she spent her days getting high at home and her nights with Dr. Robertson. Neither one of them were aware that they were both being investigated by the Homicide Task Force. They believed they were free to pursue their relationship. 
toxicologist Kathy Hamm happened to be using Dr. Robertson's phone when she looked in his desk for a blank sheet of paper. In a drawer, she found a two-page handwritten love letter to Kristen, complaining that he would be spending Thanksgiving and Christmas without her because of Greg. It would be forever referred to as the, quote, high gorgeous letter. She showed it to co-worker Donald Lowe, and together they decided it was an important piece of evidence and faxed it to Detective Lori Agnew. In December, Kristen was asked to come into the homicide department to discuss Greg's death with Detectives Agnew and Valle. She was told she could leave at any time. Kristen asked if it was normal for campus police to pass off cases to homicide, even in the cases of suicide. Detective Agnew explained that campus officers weren't equipped to conduct investigations and were merely fact-gatherers. Kristen explained that Greg was her saving angel and her best friend. She bounced back and forth between Greg being an amazing person and a scary, angry person who wouldn't give her space or allow her to grow as a person. She said that because he helped her to get off drugs, he felt he owned her. She went on to say that Greg's family were horrible and stupid and all angry people, especially Jerome. She believes something was seriously wrong with Jerome and that he just refused to believe Greg had any problems. She called Greg vindictive and revengeful and told them how Greg had threatened to tell her superiors that she was having an affair with her boss and had a prior history of drug abuse. When asked why she wanted a separation, she admitted she had mutual feelings for Dr. Robertson, and he was an amazing man with all of the perfect qualities she was looking for in a person. She called him a great friend. Towards the end of the three-hour interview, she was presented with the High Gorgeous Letter, which strongly suggested a physical relationship. Kristen was stunned into silence. Detective Agnew bluntly stated, We have a healthy individual who didn't like drugs, who helped you get off drugs, and has died in a bizarre manner surrounded by rose petals and a wedding picture. We have a lot of people who think you and Dr. Robertson had something to do with his death. We have two people who wanted out of a marriage, who wanted to be together, and we have a dead man who could have, at the very least, derailed some careers. You work at the medical examiner's office and have plenty of access to drugs and could have slipped him something. Did you have anything to do with Greg's death? Kristen stated she found the line of question disgusting and not something she would ever consider doing. A few days later, Detective Agnew and Valle met with Dr. Robertson. Backing up Kristen's account, Robertson said he'd sent Kristen home several times on the day of Greg's death to check on her husband. He said he suspected Greg's death was drug-related because Kristen had admitted he had taken large amounts of, quote, unknown medications, unquote. He shared Kristen's opinion that Greg was a, quote, volatile type of individual, unquote, who was prone to outbursts and unpredictable behavior. Dr. Robertson answered many questions with an honorable nodding of his head in agreement, as if processing the information. He would not admit to anything other than a fondness for Kristen. He admitted to telling Kristen that if his wife and he were to separate again, he would certainly look to pursue a relationship with her, but only if she were separating too. He stated after Greg warned him to stay away from Kristen, he decided to refocus on his relationship with his own wife. He admitted to knowing about Kristen's past relationship with drugs and her subsequent recent relapse. He said he was disappointed and deeply saddened for her. However, he made a personal decision not to tell the medical examiner's office that she was back on drugs despite his legal and ethical requirement to do so. He stated he didn't think Kristen had anything to do with her husband's death, describing her as sweet, caring, and loving. Dr. Robertson ended the interview by saying he wasn't sure whether or not Greg's death was a scare tactic that went wrong or if it was an intentional overdose. 
Back at the medical examiner's office, they had been checking the database for all cases where fentanyl had been impounded at death scenes in the year 2000. It was discovered that there were 15 missing fentanyl patches from the 24 that should have been logged in by Kristen. There was also an additional 10 milligram vial of fentanyl citrate missing, which Kristen had logged into inventory on October 3rd, 1997. When Detective Agney found out just how much fentanyl was missing, they commissioned a drug audit for the entire office. In December, Kristen and Dr. Robertson were both fired from their positions in the medical examiner's office. The official cause for Dr. Robertson's termination was described as a key personal issue with serious operational implications. Kristen was fired for breaking her probationary status by using illegal drugs. The medical examiner's office then audited eight death cases involving methamphetamine. Of the eight, seven of them had all of the evidence completely missing. Of those seven, Kristen Rosam logged them all in. At 7 a.m. on January 4, 2001, simultaneous search warrants were served on both Kristen and Dr. Robertson. Detective Agnew placed Kristen under arrest after discovering she was in possession of illegal narcotics. After being arrested and booked, Kristen called Dr. Robertson, asking to be bailed out. He said he couldn't as he was in the middle of having his apartment searched. He then immediately called his lawyer, Charles Goldberg, explaining his computers were seized and his passport taken. Later, investigators would find 37 presentations and articles on fentanyl on Dr. Robertson's computer. After the police left Robertson's apartment, he walked down to a dumpster and discarded a bag full of items from the soft conference, including love letters, cards, poetry, and a book on sex. However, the surveillance team managed to retrieve it. The next day, Kristen was released from custody and had to tell her parents that she'd relapsed on drugs and engaged in an extramarital affair with Dr. Robertson. She said it was because they'd forced her into a marriage she didn't want. In Kristen's mind, it was her parents' fault, it was Greg's fault, and Jerome's fault. On July 9, 2001, Dr. Robertson, along with his lawyer, insisted on a second meeting with homicide detectives. Mr. Goldberg explained that Dr. Robertson wanted his computers and passport returned and would not be discussing anything regarding his relationship with Kristen after Greg's death. He explained that it was a sore point and had caused him a lot of problems in his marriage. Dr. Robertson admitted to knowing that the San Diego Medical Examiner's Office didn't routinely test for fentanyl in an autopsy. However, he refused to discuss anything regarding how Greg might have been injected with fentanyl or how much fentanyl might have been lethal. Then, Dr. Robertson was confronted with the evidence he discarded in the dumpster, and when asked why he tried to dispose of them, he stated he was trying to reconcile with his wife and didn't want them in the house. He told detectives that he had ended his relationship with Kristen and told her that he didn't want any further contact. When asked why he requested the meeting, he said he just wanted to get his things back because, quote, I lost my job. I've lost my profession. I'm losing my wife. I don't want to be any part of this. I had a relationship with Kristen, but this isn't where I envisioned my life beginning at 2001, in the middle of a homicide investigation. I want it over and done with, unquote. When he asked if his computers could be returned due to two upcoming conferences, his request was denied. They said that they had yet to be examined and they could become trial evidence. A few months later, Kristen had stopped doing drugs, had been hired by a new company, and was starting to make new friends. Her relationship with Dr. Robertson continued. This time, Dr. Robertson was careful with his love letters and presents to Kristen, mailing them to her new place of work instead of her apartment. In contrast, Kristen wasn't trying to be discreet at all. She placed pictures of herself and Robertson at her desk and talked of marrying him and having kids together someday. Unable to find a job, Dr. Robertson returned to Australia, reportedly for his mother's cancer diagnosis. Kristen was heartbroken and confided in her boss and coworkers. However, Kristen quickly found a new boyfriend and was trying to put the homicide investigation behind her. In the meantime, 
Computer forensic experts worked for months to reconstruct the daily interactions on the computers of Kristen, Greg, and Dr. Robertson. When Kristen was asked to come in for a second interview and polygraph test, she hired San Diego attorney Michael Panser. On the advice of her new attorney, Kristen stopped communicating with Detective Agnew. On June 25th, after her attorney had called her to let her know an arrest warrant was being issued, she headed to her job and asked her co-worker to hide her love letters and pictures of Dr. Robertson. Half an hour later, Kristen was arrested at her apartment and transferred to the Las Colinas Women's Detention Facility, where she was booked, fingerprinted, and photographed. The next day, when 24-year-old Kristen appeared in court in an orange jumpsuit, the courtroom gallery was packed with reporters. The media circus surrounding this case had just begun. Outside the courthouse, Professor Rossum gave his first interview to reporters, calling the charges against Kristen devastating. Jerome DeVillers also spoke to reporters that day, saying his late brother knew that Kristen had a problem with drugs before they were married and believed he was rescuing her. He ended by saying he was looking forward to the truth coming out. By now, the story was gathering momentum in the press and had gone national. One photo editor would later call Kristen the most beautiful potential murderess in living memory. By the weekend, the story had gone international and was covered extensively in Australia's press. The focus was mostly on the affair between Kristen and the dashing Dr. Robertson. Meanwhile, after Kristen entered her not guilty plea before Judge M. Thompson, her bail request was denied. Her parents said she didn't have the financial means for a lawyer, as they were doing all they could to raise the bail money in the event it was granted in the future. The judge appointed Kristen two experienced public defenders. The Rossums set out on a public relations tour pleading their daughter's innocence to the hostile press. The Rossum family agreed to be on a special ABC Good Morning America segment featuring the case. Professor Rossum described his daughter's drug addiction and adulterous affair with her boss as disappointing examples of moral weakness. On the other side of the world, Dr. Robertson gave his first interview denying reports he fled to escape prosecution, proclaimed his innocence, saying he returned to Australia to care for his mother, who was ill with cancer. While the Rossums were engaged in their media tour on behalf of their daughter, the DeVillers family hired a lawyer to file a wrongful death suit against the San Diego County Medical Examiner's Office and Kristen Rossum and Dr. Robertson for the wrongful death of Greg DeVillers. The medical examiner's office was accused of negligence in hiring Rossum without first running background checks and placing her in charge of dangerous street drugs. They also claimed the office should have prevented Kristen from donating Greg's organs so a proper autopsy could have been conducted. In the press, the Rossums started disparaging Greg as someone who had been spiraling out of control and exhibiting questionable behavior. Dr. Rossum stated the staged death scene was Greg telling Kristen, not in a letter, but symbolically, that the romance that could be embodied in a single rose was now over. Insisting that Greg had committed suicide when he realized he could no longer keep Kristen under his control. The Rossums embarked on a daily interview schedule as they wanted the truth to be known. This case was quickly becoming San Diego's highest-profile case, 
making front-page headlines almost daily. Public defenders Alex Lobig and Victor Erickson had been assigned to Kristen's case. However, they found themselves in the unfortunate position of fielding media inquiries rather than working on Kristen's vigorous defense. Judge John Thompson denied the prosecutor's request to allow cameras into the courtroom for the preliminary hearing. The first to testify at the hearing was campus police officer Bob Jones, who described the scene on the night that Greg died. He stated the investigation changed from suicide to homicide after toxicologist Donald Lowe tipped him off that Rossum and her boss were having an affair, which prompted him to turn the case over to Detective Agnew. Next to testify was paramedic Sean Jordan, who described finding Kristen in the living room on a cordless phone to 911 operators while pretending to administer CPR. He then went on to describe the scene, Greg's condition, Kristen's demeanor, and also what life-saving measures had been taken in the attempt to save Greg's life. Next, Jerome testified, giving the history of how Greg and Kristen had met, describing Greg's positive demeanor two weeks prior to their last meeting, and their future plans to go snowboarding together. During the lunch break, Professor Rosam gave an impromptu interview to reporters, describing the case against Kristen as a house of cards that would soon come crashing down. Jerome's tapes of his meeting with Kristen were both played in court in their entirety. As the tapes played, Kristen broke down in tears. Next, various apartment complex witnesses testified to Kristen's repeated and frantic returns to the apartment throughout the day of Greg's death. Then, Dr. Stefan Grunwald also testified, describing Greg as a rational problem solver with big future plans. He said Greg was popular and without enemies. He stated that the day Greg didn't show up for work on November 6th, he immediately became worried and began telephoning him. He and others in his office had an odd feeling that something was wrong. He testified Kristen finally answered at 9.30 p.m., telling him the paramedics were trying to save Greg's life. Then toxicologist Donald Lowe testified. Lowe was the man who was given Dr. Robertson's position after he was fired. Lowe began testifying about the lab's recent drug audit and which drugs were missing, which he listed as a large quantity of fentanyl patches, one vial of fentanyl, methamphetamine, and oxycodone, and clonazepam, which were all found in Greg's autopsy results. Dr. Lowe also testified to the medical examiner's careless office procedures at the time of logging drug evidence. He stated it was easy for someone to reach into the destruction box and retrieve drugs, even when the box had been locked. He also stated that the 2001 audit was the first he was aware of in his 32 years at the office. Dr. Blackburn, the chief medical examiner, testified on his findings during Greg's autopsy. He confirmed the cause of death was later determined to be from acute fentanyl intoxication. He explained the two ways to administer it, which is either by skin patch or intravenously. He explained the levels in Greg's body were excessively high and could have killed him many times over. Additionally, clonazepam and oxycodone were also found in his body. Detective Agnew testified she first became involved in the case after meeting with Jerome DeVillers. After hearing that Kristen and her alleged lover, Dr. Robertson, both worked at the medical examiner's office, she put a hold on Greg's cremation and took over the investigation from campus police. While Mr. Rossum was on the stand, he stated that he had photographic evidence to prove that Greg had obtained the fentanyl that had killed him. He said his daughter Kristen had provided him with a picture to prove that Greg had obtained the fentanyl from his own father's medical supplies, which were kept in storage in Thousand Oaks. A week before his death, Greg and Kristen had gone to the storage locker to photograph Dr. DeVillers' medical equipment, hoping to sell it on eBay. Kristen told her father that one box contained fentanyl patches, and Greg had said he would dispose of them himself. It was the last time Kristen saw the box. Mr. Rossum had no idea how Greg had self-administered the lethal drug without leaving behind any evidence. When asked why this had never come up before, he said he had been waiting for the appropriate time to share the information. He further said that he and his wife would often visit Greg and Kristen on weekends and that Greg would regularly spend the entire weekend in bed taking over-the-counter medications on a regular basis. 
He said, for someone who was allegedly healthy and outdoorsy, he was also often very sickly. When asked about his daughter's drug use, he said she had never been arrested or charged despite her 1994 possession charge. He stated his daughter hadn't taken drugs since 1995 until her recent relapse before Greg's death, which had been caused, he said, by the stress that Greg had been putting Kristen through. To Kristen's surprise, she would be heading to trial for first-degree murder of her husband, Greg DeVillers. On January 4, 2002, after six months of incarceration, Kristen Rosam was released on $1.25 million bail into her parents' custody. Two weeks after her release, Judge Thompson placed Kristen, the attorneys, and the investigators involved in the case on a gag order, accusing the Rosams of attempting to poison the jury pool. An interview taped before the gag order was issued aired from jail with a sobbing Kristen telling a reporter she did not harm her husband and thought Greg vindictively killed himself in order to frame her and Dr. Robertson for his murder. Dr. Robertson gave an interview from Australia appearing to turn on his former lover. He stated that if Greg had injected himself with the massive doses of fentanyl allegedly found in his body, he would never have lived long enough to remove the needle from his arm, let alone properly hide or dispose of it. He agreed it absolutely looked suspicious. One day after it aired, Judge Thompson sealed all pre-trial documents to prevent further contamination of an already polluted jury pool. The DA's paralegal was working full-time on the case when, on a hunch, she subpoenaed Kristen's discount grocery card records from the day of Greg's death. It was discovered that Kristen had purchased a can of soup, a cough syrup, and a single rose. Later, the defense would describe this key piece of evidence as, quote, devastating to their case. The day Kristen was supposed to meet with her defense team to discuss this new piece of evidence, she called 911, complaining she was having a panic attack. Paramedics arrived and found her face down on a bed, clutching a teddy bear, sobbing. After the jury was selected, the 12 jurors and four alternates saw Kristen break into tears for the first of many times throughout the trial. The prosecution began their opening statement with a simple outline of the case, stating that Kristen had murdered her husband because of her addiction to meth and her love for her former boss. The prosecutor stated that although they would never see her former boss, Dr. Robertson, he would be an integral part of the trial and was an unindicated co-conspirator. They also said there was a substantial amount of circumstantial evidence against him for a conspiracy to commit murder charge. The prosecutor likened the case to a murder mystery and stated it would be filled with, quote, sex, drugs, motives, and innuendos, but eventually they would put the pieces together. The circumstantial evidence with Kristen's lies told in the cover-up would finally intersect in a guilty verdict for Kristen Rossum. Throughout the prosecutor's opening statement, Kristen shook her head, mouthing comments under her breath, and trying to make visual contact with the jurors. She would continue this behavior throughout the trial, which did not go unnoticed by the judge, Judge Thompson. The prosecutor went on to express his amazement at Kristen's ability to overwork herself. Within one hour, she was emailing her married lover, declaring her undying love, adoration, and looking forward to spending the rest of her life with him. And then 20 minutes later, she was emailing her husband with professions of the same undying love and devotion. He told the jury that they would receive comprehensive notebooks of all of the emails between Kristen, Dr. Robertson, and Greg. He told the jury that despite Kristen's repeated lies to Greg, he eventually found out about the affair and her drug use. He threatened to reveal it all to the chief medical examiner. She knew that not only would she lose her job, but Dr. Robertson would lose his job, along with his work visas allowing him to stay in the United States. Greg was about to destroy the secret life she had created for herself. After four hours of presenting, he concluded that he would prove the defendant was guilty. When the public defender, Alex Lobig, began his opening statement, it would last just 45 minutes, with Kristen openly weeping towards the jury. 
Lobig began by stating Kristen would testify in her own words about the night her husband Greg de Villers took his life. He went on to explain that despite what the prosecution contends, Kristen was not raised with extravagant wealth and she came from a hardworking academic family. He explained that when Kristen and Greg met, it was love at first sight. Eventually, Kristen, who was just 18 when she met Greg, grew up and outgrew him. The more she tried to express her independence, the harder Greg tried to keep her under his control. His obsession with her grew to a controlling level. Her relationship with Greg changed from soulmate to roommate, and he accused the prosecution of grossly exaggerating Kristen's drug use. He also stated Greg couldn't stand the thought of living without Kristen. Greg told Kristen throughout their relationship that he didn't want to live without her. Over the next two weeks, the prosecution would present their case in chief, which included paramedics, ME office employees, one drug expert, and a methamphetamine expert. The last prosecution witness was Jerome de Villers, who described his brother's relationship with Kristen Rossum. After the prosecution rested, he told the judge he had been as patient as he could during the trial. However, Kristen's conduct during his opening statements and throughout the case in chief, where she tried to get the attention of jurors, had pushed him past his level of patience. He asked the judge to tell her to stop her inappropriate conduct. He said this is the victim's brother on the stand, who doesn't deserve to witness this kind of behavior. Prosecutor Goldstein accused Kristen of interfering with the court process. Judge Thompson told her not to do it again, and Kristen smugly replied, Yes, Your Honor, in a patronizing tone. Insulted by her tone, the judge rebuked her with an uncharacteristic burst of profanity. He stated, You are smiling at jurors and it's absolute BS. I think it's really hurting you. I don't think they are buying it for a second. It's up to you. You are to have no contact with any witness one way or another. Don't sit there and tell me you're not doing it. I'm not an effing idiot. The next day, the judge apologized for his use of profanity. As the prosecution rested, the defense put on their case. They called various people to testify, including Kristen's friends, current co-workers, and her parents. Finally, Kristen herself took the stand, describing her wonderful childhood, her best step with drugs, her meeting with Greg, falling in love, and subsequent wedding anxieties. She stated that she'd loved Greg when they exchanged vows and still loved him when she asked for a separation. She denied killing him, stating that a divorce would have been her way out of the marriage. During closing arguments, Prosecutor Goldstein reminded the jury how Greg DeVillers suffered at the hands of his cold, self-centered, narcissistic, unfaithful, drug-addicted wife. He described Greg's last few hours and his inability to obtain help for himself. He asked the jury not to be taken in by Kristen's beauty or intelligence. He concluded by calling Kristen Rossum a manipulative and habitual liar who conspired with her lover to murder her husband. He stated Greg DeVillers couldn't be there to tell them what had happened, but his body, incapacitated on fentanyl, was pleading for justice. After two and a half days of deliberation, the jury came back on what would have been Greg DeVillers' 29th birthday and found Kristen Rossum guilty of first-degree murder. As she heard the verdict, Kristen began shaking her head in disbelief and gasping for air. At sentencing, Bertrand de Villers read a statement from his father. It read in part, You have destroyed many people. You show no remorse or repentance for any of your actions. You cried fake tears for Greg and real tears only for yourself. On the outside, you are smart and beautiful. On the inside, you are a lying, calculating, manipulating person that cares only about herself. You repaid Greg for his kindness in the worst imaginable way. You killed him, and then you lied about it. 
Then Bertrand himself asked to address Kristen and said, Kristen, like Medea, you wielded your black magic to poison your husband. Your cunning and deceitfulness went undetected by Greg because, in his world, a person as evil as you did not exist. He saved you from the deepest valley of despair and lifted you to the highest peak of success. When you reached the top, your reward to him was to push him off the cliff when he wasn't looking. You are an example of the most sinister darkness that exists in the world. Kristen Rossen was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. To date, Kristen has lost all her attempts at appeal. Her latest attempts in 2013, based on claims of ineffective assistance of counsel, were also denied. It was discovered in 2013 that the San Diego authorities quietly filed a felony conspiracy complaint and issued an arrest warrant under a sealed indictment against Dr. Michael Robertson. It is thought that this is to preserve the statute of limitations. To date, no attempts to extradite Dr. Robertson have taken place. Dr. Michael Robertson currently runs a forensic consulting service in Brisbane. He was recently an expert witness in the highly publicized Allison Baden Clay trial in Australia. The DeVillers were awarded $1.5 million plus court costs of $27,000 against the city of San Diego in the wrongful death case of Greg DeVillers. The courts awarded a verdict in the wrongful death lawsuit against Kristen Rosam in the amount of $4.5 million in compensatory damages and $10 million in punitive damages, thus successfully preventing either her or her family from profiting off the death of Greg DeVillers. I would like to thank the new Patreon supporters, Anna Lena E., Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss Podcast, JWB, Stacy, and Beyond Contempt Podcast. And again, I'd like to thank the following people for helping us with this two-part series. Stephanie Moore, for your incredible research and script writing. Sawyer Westbrook, and the team from Resonate Recordings for your help editing the show. And finally, to Devin, Steve, and Joe from Thinking Sideways, it was a genuine pleasure to have worked with you. And now I would like to introduce to you two podcasts, It's Haunted, What Now? Hi, I'm Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast, and I'm excited to tell you about my brand new podcast called It's Haunted, What Now? It's a podcast that brings you true stories about haunted objects and the owners who unknowingly welcome them into their lives. Join me as I share these creepy, spooky, and downright terrifying stories. You can find It's Haunted, What Now? on your favorite podcatcher or at hauntedpod.com. And Moms and Murder Hey guys, it's Melissa and Mandy with the Moms and Murder podcast. We're a true crime podcast that's sure to make you laugh without compromising the seriousness of the content. Despite our name, we aren't just for the moms. Our show is for all the Diet Coke drinking, chicken loving, dateline watching people in your life. Come for the murder and stay for the witty humor and pop culture references. And you never know, you may even hear from some of your favorite names in the world of true crime. Like Dateline's Josh Mankiewicz. Do you have a preference on what we call you, Josh Mankiewicz, Manx, Sir Manx a lot? Uh, I don't hear Sir, Sir Manx a lot quite as often as I. <laughs> I can make it happen for you. I will make it happen. Broken Homicide's Derek Lavasser. Are you tearing up on me? I saw you waiting. <laughs> so beautiful, everything you're saying. <laughs> or even America's sweetheart, Ali Sweeney. The neighbors suggested that perhaps Kathleen had been attacked by an owl. The owl theory um, that Melissa and Allie Sweeney believe. Again, so judgy. (laughs) Check out Moms and Murder anywhere podcasts are found.
The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E I'm not prepared to